Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven, the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountaintop high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of precious jewel, like a precious, very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with the rod, and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. And he measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick, by man's measurement, with the angel with which the angel was using. And the wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as pure as glass. And the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third caldonian, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made a single pearl, 
and the great street of the city was as pure as gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. Let's uh, turn together to Revelation 21, those verses that we read earlier. John said these are very precious and well-known verses for us, and so they are. And sometimes that makes it more difficult to come to a passage that we know really, really well. We don't want to, in a sense, break it. We don't want to do something to it that, that sort of spoils it for us because we have a very special place in our hearts for it. But we trust that as we examine this more closely, it will indeed come to mean even more to us, Revelation 21. Um, I don't know if you noticed that just after Christmas, one of the things that happens is that lots of summer holiday adverts begin to appear uh, in the newspapers, and you can see the attraction, can't you? You know, you're, you're just uh, digesting your turkey, and you're thinking, oh, January, February, that's a real drag, isn't it? And uh, I, 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 wouldn't it be great if I could just book a, a week in Malayal? It would just really make these next couple of Months go so much better, and, and uh, really give me something to look forward to. And, and that prospect then enables you to persevere. And, and I guess what we're, we're doing tonight, what we're looking at tonight, should have that sort of function for us. Uh, not a summer holiday, but heaven itself. Not to get us through the struggles of winter, but the struggles of life. And this is a, a chapter that tells us what God has in store for his people. And, and you remember that the, the, uh, the immediate readers of this book, of course, were uh, the Christians of the seven churches that we meet right at the beginning of the book, and, uh, or the, maybe more accurate to say the immediate hearers of this letter. Many of them would have had this letter read to them. But uh, the, those who heard it first were the first Christians uh, in those churches, and, and they were Christians who were under pressure. They needed help to endure. Nero was the emperor, and uh, pressure was increasing upon them day by day. And so the book tells them about the battle that they're in, tells them about the victory that they uh, will share in, and tells them of the wonderful destiny that, that lies ahead. And all of this is, is partly so that they will understand what's going on around them, but, but partly, maybe even mainly, so that they will overcome, as the book itself puts it, uh, that they will persevere, that they will keep going. And we need to hear that at times. I don't know where you are tonight. You might have come through the doors tonight and think, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Or why should I keep going? Or maybe somebody has come through the doors tonight and they're thinking, you know, I'm going to give this one last go because I'm ready to throw in the towel. And, and I really pray and hope that 
that as we look at Revelation 21, you will see, you will have some reasons for why you should keep going, why you should stick in and, and, and persevere, overcome. So what is it we see in this chapter? Well, there are all sorts of ways that we could look at it, but we're going to look at it as a wedding. That, that's what we're seeing here, the bride and so on. And we see this wedding, and we're going to navigate our way through it by, by thinking of the venue, the wedding venue. We're going to think of the bridegroom, the, the, the groom, and then the bride. So there's a venue, first of all. You see uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, so John's very clear that the present world will not endure as it is. Remember last week we saw that when Jesus shows up on the throne... In verse 12 of chapter 20, it says, Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And, uh, there, there's something very different about this new heaven and new earth compared to what is there before. And through the Bible, it's very clear that God's going to bring this present world to an end in its present form. But, but Christians down through the years have sort of uh, debated and, and differed on, on the relationship of what's here now compared to what will be here then. For some, there's more of a connection between what's here now and what's here then. And for others, what's here then will be almost unconnected to what's here now. So, and both, both of those views are sort of, um, there are strands that, that lead you to both conclusions within the Scripture. So, for example, Jesus speaks about the heavens and the earth passing away. Peter speaks about uh, the, the creation being burned by fire and so on, implying that, that what's coming is, is really very, very different. And then Romans speaks, for example, about creation groaning, uh, waiting for its consummation, uh, implying there's some sort of continuity. So, you know, if you can think about this, if you imagine some old broken-down house and it really needs dealt with, Frogmore Cottage, how about that? <laughs> and uh, it needs to be turned into, this is really not a good illustration at the moment, but it needs to be turned into a home fit for a prince and a princess. Put aside all the politics. And, and, and there are some who come to Her Majesty and they say, really... This is just not going to do it. It, it. There's nothing for it but to bulldoze this and start again. And then there are others who, who as it were, would say to the queen, well, look, you know, it, down through history, there, there has been so much poured into this house has got, this house has, has had investment from uh, the family and, and, and you really ought to, to see if there's a way for you to, to renovate it. And, 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 and the, 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 a renovation takes place rather than a replacement. And typically, so those are the sorts of two ways in which we look at what's to come. And typically, those in the Reformed tradition, people like us, tend to emphasize the continuity of what will come. In other words, that there's a connection between what's here now and what's going to come. It will be tremendously transformed, almost unrecognizable, and yet recognizable. And... The resurrection almost sort of implies that, doesn't it? God does not give us fully new bodies, and yet he does. He, he resurrects these bodies 
and renews them. Now, what that's going to look like is really hard to imagine, but there is a connection between what is to come, even in our resurrection bodies, and what is here now. Whether we'll be 18 or or 80 in, in that sort of in terms of how we see one another, who knows? But, but we will recognize one another. And, and so there's a connection. Now, one thing's sure, whatever way we go on that, one thing's sure, it is perfect. And that, that phrase in verse 1 that tells us that there's no longer any sea implies that. So, so uh, that's a symbol, I think, rather than what we're to understand literally. Uh, you might remember we said earlier in the Revelation, in, in the book of Revelation, that when uh, a beast emerges from the sea, one of Satan's uh, sort of unholy trinity, as it were, uh, the, the, the sea was a, a focus of chaos and sin and rebellion for the Jewish mind. Uh, Jews were not natural seafaring people. And so the sea was a chaotic place. It came to symbolize a world in rebellion against God. And so whenever Revelation, whenever in in Revelation with all of its pictures says there's no longer any sea, it's saying all the chaos is gone. Everything is fully under God's rule. There's no more rebellion. And this sounds like a wonderful place. It is a wonderful place. And what happens there? Well, we see that it is the setting for a wedding. This is the wedding of all weddings. On Wednesday night at the midweek, we were beginning to look at the big story of the Bible, and we looked at creation, and we saw the creation of the man Adam and the woman Eve, woman created from man's side and became his bride, and God presents her to Adam. And here, the bride, which is the church, is ready to be presented to the second Adam. And so that he may have his bride, Adam has violence done to him. His side is pierced. And of course, we know that great violence is done to the second Adam, too. His side is pierced. He goes into the sleep of death, but a bride is formed. So so the people of God is described as a holy city, or are described as a holy city. You see, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And here then there's this beautiful pronouncement of the blessing of being with God finally in heaven. You notice that it's, it's, it's dominated in some ways by the things that are missing. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those things that have marked this present age that are normal for us, those things are all done away with. All those things that bring hurt to God's people. All the causes of tears removed. And in their place, true and full fellowship with God. In fact, God himself wiping those tears away. Now, now these verses are in some ways, the first part of Revelation 21, is sort of an introduction to heaven. And then those themes are revisited again later on in this chapter in 22. And they will be, we'll return to them in a little bit more detail. But but we, we see then that after describing the venue, the new heavens and the new earth, John goes on then to describe the, the groom, because the groom is introduced in, is it verse 5, he who seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy 
and true. In fact, we learn about this groom largely from what he says. We learn who he is and what he does. He's the one who's renewing this world that has been broken by sin. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, verse 6. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We would say the A to Z. So there's nothing to be talked about outside of Jesus, nothing to be examined apart from him. He he, he encompasses everything. He, He relates to everything. And what would you expect such a one to do, such a one who is as great as this, as all-encompassing as this, what would you expect this sort of groom to be like? Well, amazingly, he's actually one who, who graciously gives. You see at the end of verse 6, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, you remember, this is coming to these first century struggling Christians. And what comes to them is this picture of the bridegroom who, who speaks the gospel, who, who, who embodies, in a sense, the, the whole gospel of grace. As he opens his mouth, he speaks about his grace and mercy. And it is a gospel of grace. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So the question might come, you know, as I get this picture of heaven, just remind me, John, as it were, remind me, Jesus, what is it that I need to do in order that I might be part of this? And there's lots here, but we see that we have to admit our need. There's There's thirst. You know, those who say that they have no need of Jesus or what he gives, they have no hope. Their end is described in verse 8. But when we come to Jesus with our need, well, he meets our need. And this is the basic attitude of the gospel, isn't it? Coming in our helplessness to the one who can, can help us. Coming empty, looking to be filled. Coming, looking for grace and not reward. And it comes at no cost to us. At no cost, we get to drink from the spring of the water of life. Remember, Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks, he said to her, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what, what is necessary for me to, to be with God forever? Well, coming to Jesus empty-handed. But, but not only that, it's not just a looking to Jesus. A genuine looking to Jesus brings something. It evidences itself with something. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, a genuine looking to Jesus produces a clinging to Jesus, a living for Jesus. And there's those encouraging words to these Christians to say to them, Keep going. Base your life on this gospel. Persevere, overcome. And, and, and this is for you. We, we find the blessing of heaven ours as we persevere. So we don't shrink back. We don't give up. So there's the venue. New heavens and the new earth. There's the bridegroom. 
the one who is everything and yet graciously gives. And then, in a way, the rest of the chapter is sort of taken up with the bride. Look at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, these verses are indeed all of Revelation, but these verses particularly are just full of little Old Testament references. And that's, that's true everywhere, but, but, but especially true here. It draws, Revelation draws together all sorts of little strands that have been running all the way through the Bible. We don't have time to look at all of those, but, but let's try and unpick some of them as we see these pictures of the church. It's interesting, isn't it? All of us, male and female, have to put ourselves into categories that we're not completely familiar with. The men amongst us, we we need to picture ourselves as the bride of Christ. The women amongst us need to picture ourselves as the sons of God. Both of these images here within this chapter, not because of the gender that's implied, but because of the, the rights and privileges and, and a, a, a joy that, that's involved in all of those pictures. So this is a bride. What sort of bride is this? Well, this is a bride who is absolutely beautiful, described as a beautiful city. Now, a word of advice to those young men who are planning to get married. You probably should not say to your new bride, you remind me just of... Oh, Grimsby. Uh, but but, but the, the, the city here is beautiful. The Bible starts in a garden, ends with a city, and this vision of this city is glorious. You see verse 7, it, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. Now, w- whenever this book starts, we're introduced to these seven churches, Remember? And those seven churches were churches largely full of problems and difficulties. Church was under pressure. Church was compromised. It had dallied with sin. It was troubled with all sorts of false teaching and so on. And that's our experience of church, isn't it? Church, it's not everything it could be. It's far from perfect. But what it will be is glorious. You you know, when a a bride walks through those doors, the congregation turns around, there's 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 an audible gasp, there's an awe as people see her. And you see, when this bride, when this city is revealed, the universe is going to draw breath. We will walk up the aisle and, and, and the universe will gasp. It's a bride that is beautiful. You, you see that it, it is a, a city, a, a people that is protected. It's surrounded by walls. It speaks of protection. So nothing is going to assail it. Nothing that should not be in it will be able to enter it. That's, the, that's picked up in, in verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it. So this is a, a city that is eternally safe. You're not going to lose your salvation. Nothing's going to happen that's going to disrupt the bliss of glory. Nothing will threaten us there. 
And, and then we see, too, that this is a city that has gates and foundations. The gates are uh, named as the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 12, and there are 12 foundations. Maybe we should think of the, the sections of the wall between the gates, perhaps. Uh, hard to visualize exactly what that uh, looks like. But, but on those foundations, there is the names, there are the names of the 12 apostles. Later on, we see that these uh, are linked to precious stones, probably linked to the, the high priest's breastplate in the Old Testament and a number of other visions in the Old Testament. But, but we've seen this sort of 12 and 12 arrangement already in this book, uh, 12 apostles, 12 uh, uh, tribes of Israel. There were the 24 elders back in chapter 4. And, and we said that that was probably a picture of the people of God in the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, and in the New Testament based upon the 12, the 12 apostles. But, but let's think about the foundations here for a moment. So the question is, here's this marvelous study, beautiful and safe and so on. What is it based on? What are the foundations like? We talk about foundations like that. We talk about basing something on a certain foundation. So what's the city based upon? What's the church based upon? Is it that we come together and we have our common experience of the Lord? Isn't it great to know that Jesus has done this for us? Well, there is truth in that to some degree. But that's not what the foundation is here. It's based on these apostles, you see. Paul picks this up. He, he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And then verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what does it mean to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Well, it's their testimony. It's they who see the Lord. It's, it's they whose, whose teaching is passed on to us in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, in the, 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 the flow right through all of the Scriptures. So, in other words, when, when Revelation, it's a long way of getting there, isn't it? But when Revelation says that this is a city that is founded on the apostles... It is saying that this church that God is building, people of God, is based on, built on the unchanging, passed down message of the apostles. Remember Acts 2, the church explodes and the, the church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the, the foundation of the church, what's, what's this church based on? The foundation of the church is built on the, is, is the apostles' message. It is the message of the gospel. And so that means you can't change it. There are some people today, you, you will rub shoulders with them this week. Some people today. And they're saying, well, you know, the Bible is really quite out of date. It never envisaged the sorts of lives that we would be living today, the complexities of, of families, for example. You, you, can't, you can't base the life of the church today on, on a 2,000-year-old book. You need to move with the times. You'll hear that this week. But to do that is to chip away at the foundation 
of what God is doing. Because he is building this city on that foundation and on no other. In, in, in verse 15, we, we start to see something of the dimensions of this city. It's massive. The numbers might not mean all that much to, much to us. 12,000 stadia. But, but the footnotes help us. They say 1,400 miles. Now, that's about as I got Google Earth out, and, and uh, that's about as far as here to Romania. So you imagine getting into your little plane, and you fly from here across the RIC, across England, Holland, Germany. You go into the Czech Republic, Slovakia, across the edge of Hungary, into Romania. And all the way, you're flying over city. But not only that, it's as wide as it is long. It's, it's, it's massive in every direction. And, and then we've really got to get our heads around this. It's as high as it is wide and long. It's 1,400 miles long and wide and high. It's a cube. What a city. You, you can see why you don't want to mess with its foundations, by the way. God, God must reckon that the teaching of the apostles, which focuses on Jesus, is able to support this great city. Now, of course, we, we know that we're not meant to take that picture literally either. It's an image, but what, what is it saying? What's it reminding of? Well, we said that you have to read Revelation with the Old Testament in mind. And, and, and so you, you look through the Old Testament and you say, well, where do you find anything that's the same height as it is wide and long? Where do you find a cube in the Old Testament? Well, only in one place. In the Holy of Holies, in the temple or in the tabernacle. You, you, you might know how the, the temple or the tabernacle was, was laid out. It, it, I always think of an old school assembly hall with, a, with the, 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 the assembly hall for the pupils and then the stage separated by a curtain and, and, and uh, the, curtain, the, the, the stage being smaller than the assembly hall. And, and the, the center of the temple was a little bit like that. You had the, the holy place, which was the assembly hall, and, and then you had the, the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, behind the curtain. That was the curtain that was torn in two in Jesus' day, when Jesus died. And, and, and that holy, most holy place, holy of holies, was a perfect cube. It's the only cube in all of the Old Testament. And the cube, you see, that, that Holy of Holies was where God was, and it, it represented the, the presence of God into which God's people then could only come by representative. Once a year, the high priest went in to offer sacrifice. But now, the people of God is where God is. He is in their midst. They are, the, they are the holy of holies. They are the cube. They are where God dwells. You see what John says in verse 22? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We, we're there. Right in the middle. With God. We don't need a temple to meet with God. Because we're in his nearer presence. We will see his face. What a position of blessing and privilege. 
We don't have time to unpick all these other images, but you see the, the blessing of that described for us here. The city, verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the light, the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who's, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, brothers and sisters, this is what we are for. This is what God created us for. To enjoy this. And, and you, you see, this is the new normal that we're heading towards. I've been thinking about this a little bit. F- from this perspective, all of this seems so hard to get our heads around. This is normal. What's around us is normal. The brokenness is normal. But we will be there forever, you see. And life with all of its heartaches and hardships and tears will be a distant memory. It will have been wiped away. So this is the abnormal part of our story. This is the part of our lives that is not as it should be. Because where we're going is where we're made for. Now, we're, we're, we're done. But, but if that's ahead of us, shouldn't we think about it a bit? Shouldn't we live in the light of it? Shouldn't we prepare for it? You think about your potential holiday in Malayal. You'd be planning for it. You'd be thinking, I need to get this and that so that I can exist there because there are no shops in Malayal. I, 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 I need to make arrangements for someone to look after the budgie or the cat, whatever it is. What should this prospect then do to us, for us? The Bible helps us with that. Paul in Colossians talks in a slightly different way about heaven, but he says this, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on things above. If you set your minds on things above, well, everything changes, doesn't it? How much time can you go through in a week without thinking about heaven? Days? Set your minds on things above. Because if you do, you'll know that I don't need to get everything here. Because I'll have everything there. So now you're free, you see. You're free to live here for him as we wait for that day. Well, let's pray that God will help us. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord, we confess this evening that our minds are so tied to this world, affected by this world, dull to your word, 
that we find these things hard to conceive of, maybe even hard to believe. We pray, Lord, that you will convince us that this vision of glory, of perfect eternity, of safety and security and the face of God Convince us, O Lord, that that is what we were made for. And if we are yours tonight, that that is where we are going. And help us, Lord, not to go for days without this entering our heads, but to think upon it daily and hourly so that we may know that the future is better by far. Help us, Lord, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.